Revelation 20, verses 1 to 15. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they, were, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's the modern times. This happens. Don't be embarrassed. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, which, uh, sorry, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the, la uh, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so obviously, uh, if you don't know these verses, they are incredibly problematic. And they, they've, um, I, I think in the, in the talk I gave a few weeks back, a couple months, I guess, ago now, um, I referred to them as what happens when we focus on the minors, I think, a little bit. Let me explain by this way. If you ever read uh, Sherlock Holmes' book called the, the Hound of the Baskervilles, very popular book, um, then you'd know, well, very basically, here's what happens. Uh, Charles Baker, uh, uh, Baskerville is found dead. And it's presumed that he is killed by this fable, this legend, this legendary hell dog that is plaguing the family. It's a curse on the family. But of course, Sherlock Holmes, no, it's not a demon that killed him. It's a person. But in it, it's, it's, it's a detective novel. So right away, one of the key suspects through much of the book is a guy named John Barrymore, who is the butler. The butler did it, right? So, and this is, I think, pretty sure that's where they get the idea, the butler did it. Because you know why the butler is always the one who people think did it? Is they always have motive and opportunity. A butler always wants to kill their boss. That just seems to be the way it is. 
And they always have opportunity because they can get near to, the, to their boss. So it's a, they're easy. But here's what you find. Do you know of any books or movies where the butler actually did it? It's not many. And same thing in The Hound of the Baskervilles. John Barrymore has proven innocent. But Arthur Conan Doyle uses it as a red herring. While you're looking over here at the butler, he's doing something else. And it's meant to draw you off the, tra the, tra the trail. I've said this before in the old days. The reason you get this idea of red herring is to get the hound dogs off your scent as you take a stinky old fish and rub it behind you and toss the fish into the... And then you run the other way because they'll always follow the smell of the fish. And so the red herring is to draw you off the, the line. I think we have unfortunately taken this passage and made something far more urgent than it is. It's important, but not urgent. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this passage, and we're going to see that this is where we get these ideas of the millennium, right? Premillennial, who's heard these words? Premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, and dispensational, and so on. All this hoopla has developed, and it's important. So that's the first point we're going to talk about. There's something that's important in this passage, but there's actually something that's more urgent in the passage than the timing of Christ's return, right? And we're going to talk about that. And let me say as well, if you want to know a lot more about these millennium things, please go listen to the two-hour lecture I gave on it. I can't spend two hours this morning. Who would like that, eh? Sunday morning two-hour lecture. Yeah, I'd like it. So we're going to do things. We're going to look again at what, just, two, just two points today. What is important, but what is urgent. Okay? So what is important? And that's the beginning here. This passage, the first ten verses of this passage are what all the mess is about. How do we interpret it? When Christ says he's coming back, we all agree. What we're concerned with, what we're trying to figure out is what is the nature of that coming and when is it coming? Those are the only two questions that all the, the, the mess is about. When is he coming and what's it going to be like when he comes? That's the two primary questions. Let me start with a quote from a guy's professor in Oklahoma, New Testament professor. He says this, the question of the millennium is an in-house family debate amongst Christians and requires diligent study coupled with a willingness to engage robustly in biblical text and in its interpretation. The differences between these views are the result of hermeneutical, that's interpretive, exegetical and theological perspectives of Revelation 20 and are not a matter of heresy versus orthodoxy. What it means is this. Pick whatever of these you'd like. They are all developed by godly men and women. All of them were intended to shed light on a very complicated passage of Scripture. And whatever side you choose, understand that you are partly going to be wrong and partly going to be right, and that the people who disagree with you are not heretics. Okay? If you hold to any of these views we're going to talk about, you are not outside of grace. Okay? So as a result, it should never become a divisive issue. Anyone who leaves this church because of my, Carl's view about the millennium, I'm sorry, you have chosen division over unity. You have wrongly understood the spirit of this passage. It's very simple. Okay? And I'm, I say that as a caution. But let me now get into all this fun stuff. So, what are these views? Everything circles, like I said, around when is Christ going to return? For, and what is this thousand years? What's that about? Because just for the record, the thousand years, that term, never shows up anywhere in Scripture, anywhere except for right here. But you see how we've made a world of a theology about it. Let's be humble as we do this. But there's three views, and I'm going to even cover them alphabetically so I cannot be accused of being in the wrong way, but you're going to know what I am. <laughs> By the time you get here, you're going to say, oh, that's what he's doing, because you've been sitting here for months with me. 
So let's start with amillennial or millennial. Depends how you want to use it. It's, this word is made up from a compound word, and it is these two, two words. Ah, if you're an atheist, you're a non-theist. You don't believe there's a God. So a means no. Thousand, millennium, thousand years. So those who take the amillennial view say, this thousand years is not a literal number, it's symbolic. You starting to see it? Symbolic. Don't think, they say, that he's going to come and it's going to be, okay, start here in exactly 1,000 years, meet back here because we're going to end this thing. They say, no, it's symbolic. Now, there's, there's pros and cons, and I've said it before, I'm going to keep saying it. These views are like a, a suit. Remember I talked about this before? Certain suits, you're going to love it. You're going to say, it fits really well, but it pinches here. Every one of these pinches. And there's strengths to them, but they're all weaknesses. It doesn't matter which one you prove there's a, or choose, there's actually more weaknesses to each of them than there are strengths. And so with this view, here's, here's the strengths very quickly. One, it's the oldest. That has some weight. This is the one that most Christians believe from the early church, Augustine, right through to the Reformation and to today. It was the most popular one up until 200 years ago. Okay? So it has that. Two, being symbolic, it makes it a lot easier to understand. You don't have as much gymnastics to do, right, as you're trying to understand these things, as you've seen even in the last number of weeks. However, here's this, here's, and I can't say all. Again, the lecture talks much more detail about the strengths and weaknesses. But here's a great weakness. If we're not careful, seeing everything symbolically robs them of the reality to which they point. So we have to be very careful that we don't go so symbolic that we say he's never coming back or whatever and much more. So there's weaknesses there. Next one would be post-millennial. If millennial means no, post-millennial would mean after the millennium, right? So what this view says is Christ will return after this thousand-year period is up. So he's going to have a second coming, but his second coming will come after this time when seemingly Satan will be bound and things will, will, will be good. In fact, the post-millennials are probably, here's, I'll say this very clearly, I think, the least scripture behind it, but the most um, uh, optimistic about the power of the gospel. Post-millennials include guys like Jonathan Edwards, pretty powerful, like not foolish people. They're under the, they believe this. They believe that the gospel, at, one, at some point in human history, may, it's not yet, but at some point, Christ is going to come and you won't see it. It'll, be some, it'll happen, but you won't know it. But what you're going to see when Christ comes and binds Satan is the gospel is going to start to gain influence in the world. And increasingly, over this time, the gospel is going to get so powerful that they will even say almost the entire world will become Christian. And that we will literally, in some cases, literally build a heaven on earth. That the gospel is so powerful it can never be denied. That's great. That's powerful. Weaknesses? History seems to disagree. Doesn't the gospel seem to be losing power in the world? Influencing the power? Doesn't it seem like we're getting hammered more? So it's, it's so optimistic as to almost become negligent of the fact that there's great suffering in the world, and it assumes that we can create heaven on earth, which is highly problematic. But, okay, post-millennial. Pre-millennial. This is the most popular. It's the most famous. It's the one that our denomination holds staunchly. I don't say staunchly. It sounds too, too harsh. It's the one we hold. Pros. It takes this chapter most literally. Premillennials see Revelation very literally, and not just Revelation, all of Scripture. 
which in one side is really good, right? Because it means that they're going to hold on to the authority of Scripture, which is good. The downside is if you take all of Revelation literally instead of symbolically, you have some problems, as we've seen. So there's that, that's part of the weakness. But here's another problem. Premillennialism is wonderful. However, there's a downside is it thinks the world is like a flushing toilet. It's getting worse and worse, and it's going to get worse and worse till Christ returns, which is okay. That makes sense of what is written here. The downside of that is if you think the world is getting worse, if you're not careful, you become a church, a pastor, a people who don't ever create disciples that go out to change the world because you think, why bother? It's, it's all going to hell anyway, quite literally. I use that word not to be flippant. Literally, it's going to hell. So why bother? In which case, those churches can sometimes become critics of the world rather than healers of the world, if we're not careful. Not all premillennials say that, but it is a danger of it. So you see, with that very quick introduction, premillennial, of course, means he's coming before. Let me actually say I didn't get that part. Premillennial means he's coming before the millennium, meaning Christ will come physically. He will come and he will usher in a thousand year, exactly, one literal thousand years reign where he will be king and the church will rule with him and they will influence and bring the kingdom here on earth. Okay? For a thousand years, it'll be wonderful. One of the downsides is after having done that, why after a thousand years is he going to allow Satan to come and ruin it and then come back and do a set, the, the new heaven, new earth? So you see, all of these views are, have strengths. They make sense of part of scripture but none of them can make sense of all of Scripture. So let's enjoy it. Let's have great debate. Let's study it. But please don't be silly enough as to think that you have the only view. You don't. Trust me as a guy who has spent his, most of his life now doing this. Um, all the great scholars I know have said, listen, we have been all of these at some point in our lives because sometimes the world looks like it's going in one direction the other. What do we believe? But here's where I think we can agree. And that's, this is the key for this first point. Here's where... We should be agreeing, focusing on where we agree rather than we disagree. One, Christ reigns. All three of them say Christ is reigning now as king, but he reigns as a lamb on the throne, which means that not only does he reign, but he is a model for how we are to reign, which means as a lamb sacrificing for the world. That we can all agree on. That is clear in Revelation and in these views. Two, he is returning. He's not going to leave us orphaned. He will come back. How he comes back? To be honest, I've told you before, I don't know exactly. I don't know. I'm not so sure I care. Just come. I'm good with the rest of it. And I know somebody jokes and says, I'm a pan-millennial, so it'll all pan out in the end. Um, <laughs> I understand. I can appreciate that approach because, I mean, at some point you just throw your hands in the air and say, what? Um, the third thing we can agree on, and there's more we'll talk later, is this. He has called us to a mission. We have work to do. In all of these views, it's clear that we are not being dragged out of the world there are some premillennial dispensationalists, go listen to the talk, I can't get into it, that say, no, no, our job is not to be in the world during the trials. I'm, I'm sorry, I disagree with that entirely. You can disagree with me, that's okay, let's not break fellowship. I see all through scripture that we are going to struggle and we're going to have to work through the hardness to bring the light of the gospel and to drag as many out of this mess as we can. That's, I think, what we're called to do. And we have a, a very clear calling, and all of them agree that we do. There's a job, we're left here to do something. Right? that he has called us to, and much more detail. And I'll close this point with this point from a, a great pastor, well, great human, you know, Scotty Smith in Tennessee says this, no amillennialist is going to put or pout if the postmillennialist is right. 
No post-millennialist is going to have his feelings hurt if an amillennialist proves to be more consistent with the unfolding of the history of redemption. Premillennialists are not going to high-five one another for a thousand years in the face of dejected post-mills and a-mills should their view on these matters be realized in history. The good news is that all Christians are going to enjoy fully, uh, fully everything won for us by our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, no matter what our position on the millennium is. I, I agree. One way or the other, we win because Christ is one. Simple. So let's, let's be on that. Now, this is why I think that's a very important thing to discuss, but not the most urgent thing. The most urgent thing are actually verses 11 to 15. This scene is the throne room, which we've been seeing since chapter 4. The throne room, remember I put the diagram up there, it's got the throne in the center, and there's lightning, and there's beasts around, the four creatures and the 24 elders. But here, the only thing in the throne room is the throne, all of a sudden. It's like everything has been moved out because the focus is now clearly nothing but the judgment throne. The very, I mean, the very, it's, so, it's actually so direct, people try to find ways to make it less direct. It's very simple. There's one throne. We will all stand before it. Everyone who has ever lived will be raised and stand before the living God. And a book, it says books, plural in the Greek, will be opened up, presumably meaning each one of us has symbolically anyway, a book where everything we've ever done is in it. And that will be laid out in front of you to judge you. That's not a pleasant idea for me. There's judgment. And so I wonder, we worry about when Christ is going to come back, when I think the more pressing question is, how will we stand when he comes back? Which is a far more important question. Because he comes back today, I have to be ready. If he comes back in a thousand years, I must be ready. So what does it mean to get ready? And while we're debating these other questions, I do worry that we miss the urgency of this. That we're debating points of doctrine, which are important to debate, while people are dying. So I think the more important part are these last few verses, the more urgent at least, maybe not more important, the more urgent. So, and this is why it's important. We stand before this judge, and it's one thing, you know, it's, it's this the deeds versus faith thing. Have you not seen that? It's saying everything we've done will be judged against us. And uh, this has, has implications for whether you're a skeptic or a believer. So I'm going to cover both quickly. Oh, well, Carl, quickly. Um, so if I'm a skeptic, why do I care? If I'm not a Christian, why, does it, like, why do I care if there's this, the Bible, this ancient document, claims is going to be a judgment day? Big deal. Like It's a book. What, 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 what's the value of it? And a uh, professor, he's passed away, but he was a philosophy professor at Oxford named Richard Robinson, and he did not like Christianity. Here's what he has to say. If it really were probable that we should burn eternally or not burn eternally according as we disobeyed or obeyed a certain set of moral laws, that would indeed be an excellent reason for obeying them, but it would be a poor reason for respecting them. On the contrary, they and the God who imposed them on us in this unbelievably brutal way could only be regarded as beneath contempt. So, as a skeptic, I understand this view, right? I do. I can, I can appreciate it. I held it once upon a time. There's two issues he points out. One, there's no judgment, he says. No judgment. Two, if there is a judgment, then this God is useless to us because he's a jerk. That's basically, he's, he's wicked towards us because he sets this standard he knows we can't reach. And then he says, ha-ha, burn while you can't reach it. It's just cruel, he says. So I understand that perspective. But let's, 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 let's not let it sit there. I never like to let an objection sit there. 
unless you've really thought it through. So let's first take the first one. What happens if there's no judgment? If there's no judgment in the world, there's no afterlife, there's no uh, reckoning at all. So if that's the case, well, and just so you know, there's two options, right? If there's to be no judgment in the world, no judgment, you have one that says that means there's oblivion. The atheist comes and says, listen, you're just chemicals. You're basically worth about $8 of chemicals if you add up all of what we are. And then once you're dead, you're dead. There's nothing. It's black. It's darkness. Stop it. Stop thinking about gods and judgment. There's none of it. There's oblivion afterwards. Okay. Let's, let's take it. Let's follow that belief and see if it holds up in practice when the way we actually live, including Mr. Robinson and everybody else who thinks it. Because I have, there's a problem in it. Imagine I was to walk outside and have a ball. And I decide to try to run past you with it, and I, and, and I try to kick it past you into, a, into what I created, a net. You and I would know that's soccer. Football for us Portuguese types. Now, what if there was no rules? And I'm walking there with the ball, and some guy punches me in the face. I would say, that's a foul. Well, I'd probably roll on the floor for 10 minutes. Then I would say it's a foul. <laughs> right, I'd say it's a foul. But what if he said, who says it's a foul? There's no rules. There's no rules. What do you mean? You're just running around with a ball. I would then be trying to claim some sort of a, 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 a infringement, but he'd say there's no rules. And this is exactly what the atheists say. Right? There's no rules in the world. It was all accidental. So as a result, if there's nothing afterwards, no judgment afterwards, to understand that you're being pro-choice, pro-life, left-wing, right-wing, calling somebody by their gender pronouns or telling them to go to heck, whatever you do, there's neither is right or wrong, because there's no rules, right? This is the challenge with oblivion. If there is no judgment, there is no right and wrong, meaning your actions have absolutely no value or importance. Because if you help the beggar who needs help, you've done nothing, because it's going to be forgotten. You're going to die, and you're not going to be ever rewarded for it. The single mother who sacrifices to raise her child, you're never going to be rewarded. Your life is always sacrifice, sacrifice, burden, burden. There's no healing for that. You die in oblivion. Everything you've left behind will erase at some point. How many of you remember your great-grandparents' history really well? Anyone? Not many. You got, what, two generations before you're wiped off this earth. Unless you're Bach or Shakespeare, and nobody cares about them. Just listen to their music. So you see, if there is nothing, if there's oblivion, you have a problem. And I challenge people who think this and say, try to live that way. Try to live that way for one morning, I dare you. Because you're going to wake up in the morning, you're going to open up the newspaper, and you're going to see something that your least favorite politician did. And you're going to say, gosh, he shouldn't have done that. Or he ought not have done that. And I'm going to come up and say, you have no basis by which to say that. Because the moment you say somebody should have behaved a certain way, you're assuming there's a right way to behave. But who made up that right way? There's no God. So if Donald Trump, you don't like him, tough bananas. If Hitler is never judged in this earth because he puts a bullet in his own head in the bunker in Berlin, he never faces judgment for what he did. Live with it, oblivion. Take, that, like, take your view. Accept the fact that you actually don't love your children. Because if there is no God, you're just chemicals. And the reason you love your kids it's not because you actually love them. It's because you, by evolution, realize as a, as a tribe, in the, in, while you're a hunter-gatherer tribe, you realize the best chance you had to survive was if you were nice to each other. So you learned how to pretend to love one another because it ensured survival of the fittest. right? And you started kicking out the guy who was stealing because you realized that, that, that impacted the potential for survival. 
So now, you and I love our children, but you don't really, because there's no such thing as love, because that's something beyond chemical. So all you're doing when you love your kids is responding. You're being duped by your chemicals. That's what atheism says. That's what oblivion suggests. If you believe that, okay. Now I dare you to try to live that way. Because I assure you, you can say there's no right and wrong, but the moment somebody cuts you off in traffic, there's a right and wrong. It's just unlivable. And I, I understand what they mean. I want, I, I do. But it's not fair. We can't let you off the hook. I can't. I would be a bad pastor and a bad Christian if I allowed you to continue to believe a lie. You can continue to believe it. But I suggest you don't. So there's a problem with oblivion. But there's another option. It's possible to have an afterlife but no judgment if you are especially a liberal type Christian or the spiritual type who says, listen, there's a paradise. And everybody's going to get in there because God would never judge. Right? God doesn't judge people. We're all going to be there. But there's a, there's a challenge, right? Are you going to be having a picnic in paradise with Hitler beside you? Or is he judged? Jeffrey Dahmer, is he judged for being a cannibal and murderer? Or just, or who? And the moment you say that, they say, okay, well, listen, some people have to be excluded. Ah, you've created a judge. Who is that judge? What's the standard? Well, we make up our own standards. Well, what makes yours better than the others? If I say, kill six million Jews, like Hitler did, and you say, don't do that, who determines who's right if there's no judge who says what is right? Nobody. The one who is right is the one who is strongest. See? So the moment they say, oh, there's no, there's no judgment, you run into the same problem. And I know it sounds noble to say we're all going to coexist bumper sticker. Listen, I understand. I do get it. But it doesn't work. It simply doesn't work. And if there is a judge then, let's imagine there is a judge. Let's imagine we're, we actually believe, we, we just accept the fact that there is something. We all want there to be a judge. That's why we love judging people. We love it. If there is a judge, then the most logical thing to do is to try to understand that judge and what he thinks, what his standard is. That's the most logical thing you could do. And if Jesus is that judge, you know, Robinson has this problem. Not only says there's no judgment, but then that second part. He says, but the problem is he's cruel. This is where, as a guy with degrees in many things, but one of them specifically in theology, I will respect someone's decisions and arguments when they speak to something they are educated in. When Shakespeare speaks about writing, I listen. When Jimi Hendrix speaks about the guitar, I listen. When any of those speak about theology, I have a problem sometimes. Because when, as an expert, to an extent, you know, as far as the degrees, I, distinguish, I can distinctly see that they're amateurs, that they don't understand it. And when someone says that God of the Bible is cruel, I immediately understand they don't understand the gospel. And that's okay if they don't. But they have to understand there is an answer to this. Because here's a simple example. What's wrong, cosmically, with being judged for what you do? If this is justice, is here's the book of everything you've done, and this judge is fair, then why would we object to that sort of a judgment? Well, the first thing, I think, is because of this. We don't want anyone else's standard to judge us. I want to be able to judge all of you, but I don't want any of you judging me, because I don't know if your standard's going to be right. Yeah, you may, you may think it's all about giving to time to charity, but I think it's all about giving my money to charity so other people can do it. And so what's the standard? So part of the reason we reject a judge is because we just don't want to be judged by anybody else, which is the Garden of Eden. We want to determine it. We want to be the judge. Sometimes we do it as well because we think it's an impossible standard. This is what he, Robinson is saying. The standard's too high. Who can be perfect? Okay, 
Let's imagine he said to this, Mr. Robinson, any of us, let's, let's not judge you by the biblical standard. Let's just judge you on your own standard. Here's a microphone that recorded everything you ever said. Every time you said, that pastor shouldn't wear a t-shirt under a blazer when he's preaching. <laughs> that pastor, or whatever, just pick something. I mean, it's not just that. My kids, I can't believe they raised their kids this way. Or my parents, I can't believe they raised their us this way. Pick, just pick a standard. Pick a standard. And then hit play and listen to your own indictment of yourself. So even if you're held up to your very own standard for other people, you fail. So what standard is it? The problem isn't the standard. The problem is you and me. We don't want to be judged. We want to have our cake and eat it too. We want to be able to whore around and do as we please and then get into Xanadu. It's just not the way logic works or scripture works. And I think if we think carefully about it, we'll see that. So, oh my goodness, so much more I could say. Here's the problem with the way he thinks that he, Robinson's under the impression, and skeptics often, that we relate to God the way we relate to an impersonal, static, moral law. Meaning, at judgment, I come up and there's a checklist. And if I did it, great. If I don't, I'm dead. And we don't like it because we realize there's nuance, right? It's not, there's some gray areas here. The, way, the reason they are wrong and the reason I can push back and say they don't understand the Gospels, they don't realize that we have a judge who is a savior. We have a judge who is personal. That we don't come primarily to a law, but we come to an individual. And when we do, when you come to the Gospel, you realize that there's justice. But this God didn't say, ah, they can't do it, so I'm going to let them rot. Instead, he said, I'm going to make a way for them to get there. I'm going to make a way for them to be treated as if they, they adhered to the law, even though they, they can't and they won't. I have bore the price, is what Christ says, so that you can be deemed right. So that literally when you stand up there, the Christian says, my book is a mess, it's all just X's, but I've noticed there's red marks across all of it. And those red marks are Christ saying, because they trust me to be their, their righteousness, I can, they will be, they'll be judged, but judged to be righteous, even though they're not. Because when my book is there, Christ's book gets put on top of it. And this is simple. And I understand if you don't want to. We, the problem is then, of course, if he is king, you have to obey him, and we just don't want to obey him. So let's just get down to the very bare bones. Don't blame the judge. You don't want to be ruled. This is humanity. We don't want to be ruled. Psalm 2. Take this yoke from off my neck, they say. So that's the first long point. That's why he's only two, see? Second thing, then, uh, is a skeptic. But then there's a believer. You and I, so it's urgent for the skeptic. There's a judge. You must make peace with him. You must. Now we have the believer, and you and I must see this as far more important than we do. And here's why. See what John does? John comes, and the first thing he says is, um, the dead, not the first, but it's in there, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And you see this tension all through Scripture and all through Revelation. You must have faith, what you believe matters, but you must do. Your works matter. And sometimes we have these debates. Was James all works? Was Paul all faith? Listen, you're bringing your, your brokenness into the Bible when you say that. Because what we want to do is separate the two. We want to make it all faith or all works. It's very simple. When you are feeling like you're not serving a lot at the church, I'll give you an example of my own self. When you feel like you're not doing enough at the church, it's easy to say, well, they've got a lot of free time. That's why they can do it. So you see what you do? You, or you say something like, well, or, or look at how they're raising their kids. You know, we find reasons. We want to justify. We say, your works are good, but I have faith. Or they say, 
I don't have much faith. But look at that, that guy. He claims he has faith, but I'm the one serving. I'm the one keeping this church running. See, we want to separate the two. And the Bible demands you don't separate the two, that they stay together constantly. And so, and, and if you want to see a very good example of this, there was a, uh, one of my commentators had a, a survey he referenced. Canadian, but he was writing, American writing as a, a prophet in Canada. So I don't know what country this was for, but it's the same. Survey of the church indicated that 90% of Christians in the survey believe that the, the Ten Commandments are the still relevant and the law for life today. But only 9% told you, knew, knew what they were. See? I believe it's right, but I don't know what the heck it says. So I don't know if I'm upholding it. 65% of Christians said that the Sermon of the Mount is something we must model our lives on, and not even 1% could tell you what the Sermon of the Mount was about. Christians. We separate the two. And the, it's, let me use an, a very practical example of why they're both the same. You can't ever say faith works as separate. Imagine you're not feeling well. I heard this from another pastor. Imagine you're not feeling great, and you go to the doctor, and you're in the waiting room, and somebody says, oh, have you been here before? You've seen this doctor, and you say, oh, yeah, she's the best. Best doctor in the city, brilliant, love her. You then go in, and you tell her, I'm not feeling good. She says, okay, I have a prescription. If you do this, you'll feel great. Don't worry. It's worked 100% of the time. Go out and run or walk one kilometer a day. Don't drink caffeine and take three, these three pills every day. Do those three things, you'll be great. Everything will be, you'll, nothing will hurt you anymore. So you go home, and invariably what happens is you walk about 500 or meters, and you realize, that's pretty good. Right? I'm pretty good. I don't have to go all the way. I mean, I'm pretty active. I worked in the garden today, you know, or whatever. So then you go, and it's like, I'm not going to have caffeine, but I've got to have my morning coffee. I've got to have that one. But that's all. No more. And then the pills, you take three one day or two the next day, and you, you do this for a month, just... Sometimes you hit the mark, sometimes you don't, you're all over the place. And then you go back to the doctor, and she says, how are you feeling? And, she, and you say, lousy. I feel terrible. And she says, that's interesting. No one has ever felt bad. It always works. What, are you doing what I said? Well, sort of. Like, I'm doing this and that. And then she stops you, hopefully, and says, do you trust me at all? And you, of course, get angry, right? And you're like, well, yeah, of course I trust you. You're the best doctor in the darn city. I love you. You're wonderful. And she says, well, if you trusted me, why didn't you do what I said? Well, I got this, I was busy, and she eventually will stop you, hopefully, and say, I'm sorry, you don't trust me, or you would have done what I say. Luke 6.46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And then you might get offended, because it's the 21st century, right? Nobody, how dare you contradict what I feel, right? But I, how dare you say, I don't trust you, doctor? I trust you, how do you know it's in my heart? It's very simple, if you did, you'd do it. You don't love me. You don't trust me, or you would do what I asked. You trusted yourself. You thought, she, yeah, okay, she's a doctor, but I know my body. I know how to make it work. I know what it needs. So you see how faith and work must be connected. At some point, Christ will hold us to account, and he's going to hold each one of us to account, Christians as well. And I know we think we're saved because we believe, but do our actions show it? You can't divorce them. Don't say, Carl, faith, works aren't everything. Stop it. Read the Bible. They're both. Yes, you may be older. Yes, you may not have free time. You're not expected to do the same things all the time. You and I are called to use a little bit of resources, power, and brain power we have to serve God. Whatever amount that is. All of it. As much as we can. And when people say, oh, I don't know. Carl, let's just talk about the millennium instead. 
See, the smoke and mirrors? Yes, we can talk about the money, but let's not get off the, co- the hook. You should be helping. You should be serving. You should be in your community. You should be loving your grandkids. You should be working. We have to do this. It's both. We can't neglect one of them. I went off my script again. Um, let me say here. So how can we be sure? Urgent concern is not when Jesus is coming, but how we're going to stand when he shows up. And then, then how can we be sure? How can we be sure you can stand? Is it even possible to be sure? Because here's the problem with a skeptic and a, and a Christian, if you're not careful, how many works is enough? Did I give him enough money this week? So how do I know I'm saved? Is there any certainty? Well, yes. Of course there's certainty. Remember that old um, was evangelism explosion? Who remembers that if you're a Christian? This evangelistic tool. And the, the goal was, I think people still do it, and you would go to people on the street and you would say, if you were to die today, I use my Texas accent, if you were to die today, where'd you go tomorrow? I'm like, what would you say if you got to the pearly white gates? Right? And you were asked, why should I let you in? What would you say? And that's an interesting question Christians should ask themselves. Because a lot of the time, Christians will say, to me, surely, and I mean, we're all guilty of it to an extent, will say things like, well, listen, the reason I should be saved is um, I was a really good person. I went to church. Sometimes you go to church. Even the skeptics, though, it doesn't mean just, not just Christians, skeptics as well. I was a good person. Like, I tried to respect people. I didn't, I called people by their pronouns. I invited people over. I was good to everybody. I didn't judge them. I was good. I gave money to the Red Cross. They can keep talking. Make the list as long as you want. Immediately, the moment somebody says, I, I notice right away, you still think that it's works only and not faith. You're still under the impression that you are saved by having done things only. See, the skeptic wants to get into heaven without Jesus because they want to have their works, but they don't want to believe. They want to have, marry him and have his money, but not love him. Imagine if you did that to your spouse. You said with your words, baby, I love you but then you're whoring around and you're sleeping around and you're not coming home. Like, do you love her? Or what if it's the opposite? And you're doing all the right things for your wife, for your husband. All the right things, but you don't love her. Like, what's, do you love them? You can't separate the two. And so the benefit here is this. Scripture is the only way. Scripture says, this, when you're a Christian, somebody asks that question, your first response, and if you don't believe it, start reciting it to yourself until you believe it. This, why, am I going to be, why should you let me in? Solely because Christ died for me. I have nothing else. I have no, my book is a mess. My book is a mess. I have there's no reason to let me in other than the fact that Christ died for me. That's the only thing I have to, the, solely, simply to the cross I cling. The old hymn has it right. And that is the response of the Christian. And here's the amazing part. The gospel, Mr. Robinson and every skeptic I know, doesn't say do and then be accepted like, I'm sorry, Islam does. Have you noticed how some religions become a flurry of activity? Pray at this time, eat at this time, don't eat at this time, sleep with this person, don't sleep with that person, walk over here, don't walk over there. Because they have to fill up this gap between them and God. So you do it by, like the Tower of Babel, building on your good works until you try to reach to him. So religion says do and then you'll be accepted. If you've prayed the right amount, then Allah will take you. Christianity doesn't say do and be accepted. It says you are accepted, now go do. You're accepted before you've done any work. And this is the difference. This is why Robinson can't get it. This is why the gospel is foolishness to the Greeks. For some reason, I don't know why, Christians realize that makes sense. That the gospel sets you free, not our works. Non-Christians say that's the stupidest thing you've ever heard. 
And I, for all of my attempts, cannot reason anyone into the kingdom. I can't make them see that. I could keep telling them and hope the Spirit does it. But that is it. And once you've known that, as a Christian, once you have seen that all of that has been done for you, the gospel then says that what has been done for you, grace becomes the fountainhead from which all the works flow. And then you begin to do the good works, not because you're trying to impress God. You don't need to impress him. He's got, you've got him. He's yours. So the works then become righteous. You can then love the city without trying to take from it. You can love your wife without trying to take from her. You can love the city, not worrying it's going to cost you everything. And so, without the gospel, there is nothing. So my question for us is this. Are we sure? Are you sure you're a Christian? That sounds harsh, but when Peter says, examine your hearts to determine if you're in the faith, that sounds harsh. You're like, what, can't, are you saying I'm not assured of my faith? No, I'm saying you can be, but are you sure you're saved? Because Christ seemed to think a lot of people are going to come and not be saved. They think they are. So I have to continually tell us, are you sure? Are we certain that we know Christ alone saves us? Hopefully. There's no other way. And when you see this, I'll, I'll quote my last and then I'll close. Literally close. When you do this, I don't know what it's going to be like when Christ returns. Listen, I hope he comes back soon. I don't want to suffer. I'm a wimp. I hope it's fast. I hope it's painless. All of that. But when he shows up, I don't know if I'm going to be coherent or not. We all think I'm going to ask, oh, I'm going to ask, why did you make the duck-billed platypus? No, I'm not going to ask that. I don't think I'm going to be, I don't know if I'm going to be coherent. I don't know what I'm going to say. But what I think will probably, the most likely situation for most of us will be, as a pastor said, I will fall at his feet a puddle of gratitude and joy. What else is there? And that much I know. There is no hope outside of Christ. We have to make sure, are we ready? We have to be out there telling people about Christ as best we can. Let's pray.